Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good evening. I imagine it's always nice to say welcome to the Financial Times. It's particularly nice if you don't belong to the Financial Times. I belong to Editorial Intelligence. I'm Julia Hobsbawm, and I'm immensely grateful to the Financial Times for hosting tonight's event, which is effectively the London launch of our project Names Not Numbers, which began as an experiment uh, just over a year ago, uh, was quickly dubbed a British Davos, and is on the eve of its second year, and pleasingly has already sold out, in fact, for its second year. Our partners in this venture are the Financial Times, the Cass Business School, Jaguar Land Rover, Edelman, and um, BBC Global News and BBC World Service. And what we endeavour to do in events like this here in London and up in Port Merion, which is very far away but worth it when you get there, is to really talk about the meaning of life in the context of business, politics, culture, academia, technology, and who better, therefore, than to discuss it with today's panel. This event is being filmed and it is being podcast. It's a little bit late, but if you are camera shy, you better move out of the field of view. And really, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Lionel Barber to chair this evening's panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julia. I'm absolutely delighted to be hosting this British Davos. I'm sorry I couldn't bring the snow, uh, but I do have an excellent panel uh, to discuss the theme of the day, which is the culture and politics of business, dominant forces and ideas. We have wordsmiths, ideas, smiths, um, entrepreneurs, um, and they've all got to come up with their views um, inside five minutes, um, and I will be holding them to that. Um, first, I'd like to introduce to my right Alain de Bouton, who is uh, a very widely known and respected philosopher and writer, born in Zurich, Switzerland, now lives in London. Um, over to you, Alain. Do we go up there? I should ask. Or do um, we take it from here? It's very democratic. Right. I'll, I'll take it from here. Um, thank you. Um, I just want to throw out a couple of themes, really, um, which strike me when I think about um, politics and, uh, and business. One of them is the idea of fairness. Um, if you talk to politicians on left and right of the political spectrum, they're all united in their desire to create what gets called a meritocracy. In other words, a society which distributes its wealth fairly, according to merit, rather than according to family, connections, uh, or, or mere chance. Um, it's a beautiful idea. Uh, to which I think we all subscribe. I think it's also a deeply flawed idea, and I just want to s suggest why it's flawed. Um, one of the nasty sides of a belief in a meritocracy is if you really believe that those at the top of society deserve um, their uh, success and uh, benefits, then you have to believe uh, that those at the bottom also deserve their uh, failure. In other words, failure becomes uh, deserved as much as success in a meritocratic uh, uh, society. This gets reflected in uh, language. There's no more meritocratic society in its self-image uh, than the United States. 
Um, compare the way that somebody in the United States gets described when they're not doing so well compared to the way they might get described, might have been described in medieval Europe. Uh, in medieval English, uh, if you were not doing so well, you'd be described as an unfortunate, literally someone who has not been blessed by the goddess of fortune linguistically. Uh, in the United States, you get called a loser. Uh, and, and the difference is, of course, the idea of agency, who's responsible. Uh, and um, in the American individualistic model, but it's also the global uh, ideal, uh, it's you. So you are responsible for your failure, uh, and, uh, and, and you have to take it. Um, it also explains the higher suicide rate um, in individualistic societies, where wherever individuals are um, allowed to take the credit for things that go well. They're also allowed to take the blame when things go badly, and you get an increase in rates of suicide, as uh, Max Weber famously studied. My own view on this is um, a Christian one. Uh, I'm a secular Jew, but it's quite nice to um, read St. Augustine nevertheless. St. Augustine says it's a sin to judge any, pa any man by his post, um, by which uh, we would say by his job. Um, his suggestion is that merit, uh, earthly merit, can never be um, truly discerned and can never be neatly tied up to rewards. In other words, there's always a disjuncture between who's at the top and who really deserves to be at the top. There's an inherently unstable relationship. I'm a firm believer in meritocratic measures in every area of life, but I also believe that we should uh, hold on to the idea that even the most meritocratic society will never be uh, more than fractionally truly meritocratic. The true merit of an individual is not something that can be easily gleaned from their biography, from their business card, or from their achievements. Um, these things will always be un, uh, uh, will be slightly randomly connected to what happens in, in a life. I want to throw out one more idea in the next two minutes that, rec uh, that uh, remains to me. I want to talk about consumerism. Um, we're living now in an environment where a lot of people are going back to an idea that we should wear hair shirts, live simply, uh, not buy too much. Uh, and um, the hero of the hour is in many ways Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, who um, advocated uh, shutting the gates of Geneva, uh, restricting free trade, and essentially um, getting back to a simpler uh, way of life uh, that uh, our, our primitive ancestors uh, would have known. There's, of course, always been a great answer to Rousseau's um, desire to get back to the hair shirt and the simple life, and that answer has been most cogently framed by um, Rousseau's acquaintance, Adam Smith, um, who replied uh, to uh, Rousseau that, um, of course, it would be very nice for us all to live virtuously, not to spend too much, not to go shopping, to buy only what we need rather than what we would desire. The only problem with such a society uh, is that you will end up with the bottom 10 to 15% of your population starving. Uh, and so, in other words, uh, for Adam Smith and for all his capitalist defenders, um, the defense of capitalism is not that, it is a not that it creates virtuous societies. Rather, it stops the poorest from dying uh, and acquires its virtue that way. Uh, and we shouldn't uh, search or try to justify consumerism uh, in any other way other than simply um, prudentially and um, uh, in terms of what it can do for the very poorest in society. That's something we often forget. Of course, this society is not virtuous. Of course, shopping is bad, etc. That's not why we should defend it. We should defend it for Adam Smith's reasons, the bottom 10 to 15%. I'm going to end it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alain. Uh, our next speaker is Charlie Mayfield, who is the chairman of the John Lewis Partnership, formerly uh, an officer in the Scots Guards. Um, Charlie has also had a varied um, career in business. He's worked for Smith, Klein, 
Beecham, um, responsible then for the LucasAid brand. I'm sure you can find some way of bringing that in. Um, over to you, Charlie, five minutes. Thanks, Alan. Um, well, I think just, just rather than going straight to my notes, I think I'll just respond a little bit to what um, Alan said, because I, I, I run a company, or um, head of a company, I suppose, which uh, does believe very much in fairness and actually was founded uh, on the basis that there, that there could be a fairer form of capitalism. So I'll, I'll return to that. I also believe in meritocracy. Um, and, uh, and indeed, of course, I believe in consumerism. Uh, and, uh, and I don't think shopping is bad. In fact, I think shopping is good. Anyway, um, and, and actually, I also don't think there are necessarily uh, um, uh, conflicts between all of those things. Actually, I think it is possible to find uh, an accommodation. Um, but really, just to sort of kick off, I think the reputation of business has taken a pretty significant battering uh, over the last uh, 18 months to two years or so. Um, and as a result of that, there is now a lot more scrutiny uh, being applied to business practices uh, the world over. And, and actually, largely, I think that uh, that scrutiny is a good thing. I mean, the fact that we are asking questions of ourselves about, you know, is this the way we want to run uh, our companies? Is this the way we want to run businesses is, I think, good. Um, I think it is a bit concerning that quite a lot of that scrutiny is in danger of being applied to the symptoms rather than uh, to the causes. And, and, and by that, I really mean that um, by, you know, there's a lot of uh, focus being applied to bonuses uh, and to individual remuneration, which while I, I share uh, some of the, uh, the concerns about that, um, I think actually this more significant point is that if we're really serious uh, about laying the foundations uh, of a more sustainable uh, and long-term focused business culture, uh, and indeed building on the back of that a fairer society, then actually knocking bonuses, populist though it may be, uh, won't actually get us uh, towards that, that goal. You know, instead, we need to be looking a lot more fundamentally at the economy and, and I think at the way businesses are owned uh, and the culture that predominates uh, inside a lot of them. Now, the dominant model of ownership in the Western world has, has come to be seen as the, the joint stock company, uh, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. And, and indeed, I would say that that has actually served us pretty well over the course of the last 150 years or so. It's certainly been an engine for growth. Uh, it's been a driver of innovation. But too often, and perhaps increasingly, uh, we've seen the owners of those companies focusing uh, a lot more uh, on, on short-term gains and a lot less, in fact, on uh, what really drives long-term success and the long-term interests of the companies they own. And indeed, perhaps also in, on occasion, uh, the other stakeholders in those companies uh, on which uh, they depend. Uh, as a result, ownership uh, can quite quickly, I think, through the financial markets, become reduced to something which is really quite temporary uh, and quite transactional uh, in terms of its character. Uh, and I hope that this economic crisis actually provides us with an opportunity to have a much more fundamental look uh, at uh, how we think companies should be owned, uh, what their management structures should be, and indeed what mechanisms of accountability are necessary uh, in order to make this all sustainable. And I think it's interesting to, you know, some people say to me, ah, yes, but uh, are, you, are you advocating you know, a mass transition to employee ownership? And, I'm, and I would just say, first of all, I'm, I am not. Uh, but I do think it's worth pointing out that there has been perhaps a greater shift in ownership than people perhaps appreciate. In, in 1963, over the half the shares in UK companies were owned by individuals. Uh, that number is a lot less now. It's around one-eighth 
uh, of shares uh, in, in UK companies. Uh, and actually, I think, therefore, one of the things that we might seek to, to achieve is, is, is wider share ownership by owners who take a real active and responsible interest in the companies they own, which is defined uh, in more than, uh, than simply buying and selling uh, those shares, but actually being active uh, in exercising the rights of an owner uh, to ensure that the company is run uh, in the interest of owners and, indeed, responsibly uh, in terms of its impact on society as a whole. And I do clearly believe that uh, employee ownership actually has a lot of merits uh, in terms of bringing some of those, uh, those aspects together. You know, what it does do is it provides a closer alignment uh, between the interests of owners and the employees. Uh, they are one and the same people. And also, coming with that become, comes uh, a natural focus on long-term performance. You know, owners of a business who also work in it you know, come to work not just because they're hoping what the share price might do tomorrow, but they come to work because they want to feel fulfilled. They want to feel they've done something worthwhile uh, that will contribute to their longer-term wealth. Very often, they're also very interested uh, in how their company performs in, the, in society generally and what it offers uh, to people uh, outside. And I think in the era going forward where perhaps uh, we will see less uh, of uh, uh, return to shareholders coming from financial engineering uh, or indeed from short-term speculation and where prosperity will depend more on, on long-term growth, long-term sustainable uh, improvements in productivity, that actually there's a real opportunity to rethink ownership and to perhaps think more about the potential for employee ownership, particularly uh, in knowledge-based companies, and, and maybe through that to create a fairer form of capitalism. Thank you, Charlie. Um, in praise of uh, employee ownership, um, how come uh, Lehman and AIG got into such difficulty when they specifically singled out the importance of employee share ownership? So I think in, in the context of both of those, uh, those companies, actually, I think it's, uh, it's perhaps odd that Lehman's was one of the, uh, one of the investment banks which em emphasised employee ownership and in terms of uh, you know, quite a large proportion of the shares were owned uh, by employees. Um, I think you, you can't, though, separate that from the market in which they're operating. Uh, and the market they're operating in was one that had, had grown uh, its returns on the back of uh, increasingly, increasingly sophisticated and complicated trades, which ultimately have proven uh, to, to really not offer true long-standing value. Okay. We'll come back to the financial engineers. Um, but first, uh, our next speaker, uh, Professor Norina Hertz, um, she's a an extremely well-known author, uh, academic, uh, has written uh, a well, uh, a bestseller, in fact, The Silent Takeover, Global Capitalism and the Death of Democracy. Um, over to you, Norina. Thank you, Lionel. Um, when I looked at the title of today's event, I have to admit that I did inwardly sigh. Sorry, Julia. Um, but it's really hard to make generalizations about business, given how divergent, um, different, different in form and history they are. I mean, the world of the 21st century is the world of Twitter, but also of Trafigura. It's the world of John Lewis, but also Bernard Madoff. And that being so, um, what I'll attempt to do in my five minutes with my socio-economist hat on, is to reflect on just one particular part of the title of tonight's event, the politics of business, and identify a key trend in that respect, a trend that I think will really impact upon our collective futures. Um, and that's that I see businesses acting more like governments. 
a trend I first identified about a decade ago, but I believe we'll continue to see more of. Um, and on the whole, and remember, I am talking about a trend here, so I'm not talking about Ryanair. I'm not talking about the stuck in the 90s, still worshipping Gordon Gecko bankers. But on the whole, um, businesses are seeming to be addressing social, environmental, ethical, and political issues increasingly proactively. And by and large, they seem to have continued to do so throughout the recession. Um, now, sometimes this is because there's a kind of moral impulse to be good, because a particular CEO wants to leave a legacy, um, redolent of Cadbury, say, in Victorian Britain. But more commonly, it's because businesses are beginning to see an intrinsic value um, in doing this. They're starting to see that by addressing social, ethical, and political issues, this is somehow intrinsic to their survival. You see, at a time in which people are increasingly turning their back on traditional politics, people are looking, I believe, at alternative power structures to deliver on social, political, and ethical norms and values. And they are looking at corporations to do so. Um, in a survey done by Edelman last month, um, over seven countries, three quarters of people polled said that they felt that businesses should create solutions to minimize global warming. And I think that corporations recognizing these market opportunities, if they serve these conscientious consumers who have felt um, disenchanted and disengaged from their politicians, if they identify the values of retaining the kind of employees that Charlie talked about, employees who perhaps in the past might have once proudly carried a party membership card, um, if they can connect with these kind of constituencies through their new statesman-like guise, well, that actually can deliver a competitive advantage. And smart companies are recognizing that by addressing social, political, ethical, and environmental issues, they have the opportunity to create stickier customers, um, to build and consolidate their reputations, to attract and retain the best hires, to be in place to grab the big market opportunity that the green economy will, of course, deliver, but also the opportunity of the billions of people at the bottom of the pyramid. And it's a combination of all these drivers um, which account for why it is that we see a company like TNT training the World Food Program in its logistics operations, or we see a company like Ericsson deploying its mobile telephony to help women in developing countries, or we see Rupert Murdoch's Sky campaigning to save the rainforest. Um, it's not that the business of business is no longer business. Of course, it still is, and it still should be. I'm sure you'll be glad to know. Um, it's just that as society evolves, um, businesses need to be aware that what constitutes good business evolves too. And the interesting question, of course, which comes to mind is, what does this mean for government? If businesses are acting like our utopian politicians, then what role for government? Well, clearly some. Um, PepsiCo, for example, their quest now to radically shift their product mix towards healthier products really, I think, has been catalyzed 
by the shift in U.S. policy towards fast food, by Mayor Bloomberg's attitude towards trans fats, by the obvious cost to the U.S. Um, state um, of obesity. Um, but the role of government, I hope, won't just be confined to intervention in the margins because, of course, rules of the game do need to be set. Unfashionable causes do need to be bankrolled. And there are financing gaps which only governments can realistically fill. So although I embrace the innovation and the creativity of businesses in the public sphere, democratic governments, we have to remember, are elected by all their citizens. In a world in which corporations were to rule, well, um, those who had more money would have greater votes and vote and vote. Um, I just want to throw to finish a question out into the audience. Who in this room thinks that their lives are better than those of their parents? Okay. And who in this room thinks that the lives of your children will be better than yours? Oh. An understandable response, given how on a daily basis we become increasingly aware of growing exclusion, growing danger, growing inequity, growing extremes. But if there's any chance that we can solve these problems, it will take the commitment of each of us. It will take the commitment of politicians. It will take the commitment of citizens, and it will take the commitment of business too. Every generation has the opportunity to make a change. Every generation has the opportunity to change our narrative. <clears throat> politicians do, the public do and business does too. Thanks, Noreen. Um, let me just ask you, if you'd asked the same, if you'd asked the same question in uh, 1972 or 1936, do you think the reaction of the audience would have been the same? Um, no, I think the um, particular, um, I mean, of course, there are always moments in history when there are challenges ahead. But I think the particular nature of the challenges ahead of us are ones that we only can collectively solve. Something like global warming, where we know that the solution to global warming will necessarily be a mixture of government rules, of companies innovating and finding new technologies, okay. of people mobilizing together. So I think there is something distinctly different today. Thank you. Um, we're now uh, going to turn to our next speaker, our very own in-house management columnist, Mr. Stefan Stern. Thanks, um, uh, Narina, to, to generate a truly accurate um, data set on that last question, you could actually ask my parents uh, later on uh, <laughs> to, see, see if I, to see if I answered accurately. Um, you, uh, you, you said it was hard to make generalizations about business, so I suppose at this point I should ask for a few previous offenses to be um, taken, into, taken into account. Um, but I'm not surprised there's such a good turnout to hear uh, this debate and to take part in this discussion. Uh, we clearly meet at uh, a crisis point for business. I don't think we're through it yet either. Um, lots of uh, declarations that we cannot go back to business as usual, even as you pick up the paper and see that 
something quite like business as usual seems to be continuing in the markets. I think that uh, paradox, that sort of ambivalence, was probably best captured by a famous headline last year in the uh, satirical U.S. Uh, publication, The Onion, which some of you will know from its website, where they ran a, a story under the headline, Recession-Plagued Nation Demands New Bubble to Invest In, <laughs> and reported how a panel of top business leaders had demanded that the government provide Americans with a new, irresponsible, and largely illusory economic bubble in which to invest. What America needs right now is not long-term strategy, but a concrete way to create more imaginary wealth. Uh, we are in a crisis, and that crisis demands an unviable short-term solution. <laughs> of course we're bamboozled by the drama, the, the force of the, of the recession, the collapse, the loss of confidence, the amazing uh, state interventions, the amazing, if you want to call them that, implications for all of us as taxpayers uh, in the future. Uh, we heard Lord Turner talk about trying to distinguish between what he called socially useless and socially useful activity, particularly in financial services, uh, which uh, provoked a very strong response. Uh, more tactfully, but no less powerfully, uh, Ken Costa, speaking only last night and in fact publishing uh, an extract of his speech in the paper in the FT uh, on Monday, declared that letting the market decide was the morality of our time, and note the perhaps optimistic use of the past tense. We became identified with the market and lost sight of its real purpose to enable us to fulfill a duty owed by virtue of a shared humanity to the wider community. Financiers created credit out of nothing but eschewed the responsibility of the creator. Um, to which the answer has to be, well, <laughs> my answer is, well, yes, but, yes, but. And I don't want to be too cynical, but I, I think it's worth asking how many people in his audience uh, who may have been nodding and applauding, how many of them will seriously be going back to their offices to adopt a wholly new or largely new way of doing business. It's very difficult when you've been successful, when you pursued a career and got to the top for 20 or 30 years, behaving in a certain way. Uh, enjoying terrific rewards, suddenly to be told that actually, as we've heard in this rhetoric of no more business as usual, that uh, it's been quite wrong, that uh, the foundations are shaky, and that uh, you have to think of new ways of doing things. I want to ask whether something fundamental has changed, um, and I wonder if it is something to do with what sometimes gets called the, the shame mechanism. Narina is, of course, absolutely right to talk about the companies who are, whether for reasons of convenience or conviction, behaving very differently today. And I suppose this conversation does get skewed a bit by uh, the excesses of a few people, uh, particularly a few people perhaps in financial services. But nonetheless, I was thinking of um, that dramatic moment uh, over 50 years ago during when McCarthyism was at its height. And Joseph Nye Welch, the army's chief legal representative defending soldiers against accusations of rampant uh, subversion communism in the army found himself hub against Senator Joe McCarthy and when one of uh, Welch's own colleagues was attacked by McCarthy he famously halted proceedings let, let us not assassinate this lad further senator he said you've done enough have you no sense of decency sir at long last 
Have you left no sense of decency? Now, the real historian can fill in on the background, but as I understand it, this was a, a huge moment in the history of McCarthyism. It was the moment when the rug was pulled from under it. And that language had a purchase. It had uh, a resonance 50 years ago. I just want to ask whether that same question put to a few individuals that we know about, who I won't name, whether that question would have the same, <laughs> the same uh, impact uh, today. So I think I'll, I'll finish by talking about leadership a bit, because that's what I write about. And that's what I'm... Okay. Uh, what happens when you have risk-takers, brave people, uh, that we want at the head of our organizations, but it, perhaps excessively brave, with no sense of shame, with no sense of guilt. What happens? I asked a psychologist about this. He said, well, we have a name for people like that. We call them psychopaths. And we don't want them in charge of organizations. I'll finish with Shakespeare. When Macbeth is debating with his wife whether to kill the king or not, he says, um, I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. Thank you, Stefan. And now to wind up, Simon Sharma. He really needs no introduction. He's the British Professor of History and Art History at Columbia, uh, award-winning author, uh, historian, broadcaster, and contributing editor to the Financial Times. Do you want to just take 10 seconds and uh, correct Stefan, or did he actually get it right? Oh, far be it from me, as I was saying. It was a year ago. We're sitting here, and I'm surprised nobody's mentioned it. it, was, it was, maybe it's of little significance, but it was a year ago that Barack Obama was elected in the United States. So I guess I come to you as the FT's reporter on the road from a year hence, and been filming just last week, actually, in a, a business world in America, but the business, small business world. And let me tell you, you know, you all know it already in any case, but it is hurting beyond hurt from South Chicago, um, Barack Obama's world where he was, you know, blooded as a politician from Cleveland. You see the kind of wreckage of this once great sort of steel industry around you, the highest rate of foreclosure in a nation in Slavic Village, uh, Slavic Village in Cleveland. And we are, I mean, it's been fantastic to hear these sort of tremendously kind of refined philosophical statements, really, from Alain Narina. And I applaud them much as I would applaud an appeal for fine weather every day in February in London. But we are at a grimly powerful, monstrous moment, really, in the political history of capitalism. At least we feel we are in, many of us do feel that way in the United States. And the, the disconnect, which again, it may be a truism, and, and Stefan's alluded to it, um, and uh, Charlie has, you know, uh, uh, and Alain as well when he's referring to fairness, but the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street is maybe a platitude, but it's fundamental, absolutely fundamental in the United States to where we are now. John Corzine lost the election in a, a, a toughly contested state of New Jersey, but recently a Democratic state, went overwhelmingly for Obama. It may not have been the reason the fact that he was chairman of Goldman Sachs probably was not the exclusive reason why he lost the election to his Republican opponent, who just really had to stand back. But wow, it did, really did not help. And I sat next to somebody who works for Goldman Sachs um, at a lunch the other day, and he said, um, 
you know, smiling at me, which I wanted to kind of push his face in a foie gras, why are they all getting on our case? And alas, I proceeded to explain to him, actually, why it might be possible. And it is, you're right, it's not to do really, it is distracting to talk about bonuses. It is not distracting, however, to talk about the moment we were at a year ago, when the distress out of which we extracted the great investment banks in the United States to the tune of nearly $900 billion of taxpayers' money, their distress nearly brought down the Main Street commercial banking system. And when this discussion of Glass-Steagall and the preposterous nostalgia and archaic nature of wanting to restore the barrier between investment banking and commercial banking, by the way, you all remember class, if you don't, there'll be an exam in a minute, that 10,000 banks had failed before the passage of Glass-Steagall, the first thing that Franklin Roosevelt did, none failed again until the slump of 1937. When it's said it's ridiculously old-fashioned to worry uh, about that, one has to remember that Morgan Stanley was thought to need to rescue itself by purchasing Wachovia, which had, Lionel, $122 billion worth of exposure to subprime. Now, why am I mad? I'm a layman. Am I a mere contributing editor to the Financial Times who mostly does arts reviews? Or is there something fucking wrong here? The, and so, I wish Narina was right. I hope she is right about the staggeringly new altruism of the business world. But at the moment, as you say, we do need a healthy shot of regulation. I think now, in specific points, I'm about to stop, Lionel, believe me I am. And we're not talking about remuneration intervention. We're talking about whether, for example, securities, all securities should be traded in a transparent clearinghouse in the United States. Or there should be vanilla securities, which will be traded in a transparent, regulated clearinghouse, or customized securities, which, guess what, is where most of the people are still expecting to make their money. For example, in securitizing life insurance policies. Are, how tough are we going to be in the United States about capital requirements? Uh, or, and indeed, what kind of separation, if any other, is there ever going to be between these two forms of banking? The anger out there in Slavic village is that $900 billion worth of taxpayers' money does not seem to be going to investing in small businesses at all. We're through 10,000, don't know what we were today, and we're very shortly to be into double-digit unemployment. And these are two worlds. And I come to you from the memory of Cleo, goddess of history. There were two worlds before the French Revolution as well. And there was a moment when the debts of the French kingdom, then owned by not the Chinese, but the, the Chinese of the late 18th century with the Genevans, when foreign policy simply and an army couldn't be sustained. Public policy had to stop, which brings me at the end to another wonderful, just a kicker in it, a wonderful headline in The Onion, twice quoted tonight, which says, US successful in building new uh, model quagmire in Afghanistan. <laughs> Thank you, Sai. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. I won't try and sum that up. And you can have your column. <laughs> Just a question, aren't you aren't you slightly exaggerating? 
And when you say that we've what? reached a, <laughs> a monstrous moment, do you, I love the alliteration, a monstrous moment in American capitalism, the day after Warren Buffett has invested $22 billion not in some investment bank, but in the railways. Well, I mean, Things are getting better, Simon, haven't you noticed? Uh, no, actually, it may be spending too long in Cleveland, Lionel, but, um, but, I but I'm very, very glad to hear that, if, in fact, this is an infrastructural moment. I mean, Obama said it's too big a crisis to waste, but, you know, there's a possibility, because of business as usual, because of the you know, lobbying efforts running to many millions of dollars, the crisis nonetheless may get wasted. But good for Warren Buffett, although did he not lose money in Berkshire last year, after all? No. But he didn't. I thought he had. Um, anyway, we can come back to that. Um, I'm going to throw it open to the audience uh, for comments and questions to, the, to our distinguished group of panellists. Who would like to come up first? No Ah, yes. Well, we'll go to the, my friend Neil Collins there. Um, Let's just get a mic. Yes, uh, could, I'm you just Collins, say, sorry, could you I'm just say who you are? You don't need to say your age, Neil, that's all right. Um, just, uh, I'm Neil Collins, over 21, and I work for Reuters. Um, I was very pleased to hear uh, Charlie Mayfield defending bonuses. Um, however, I take the view, I agree with Simon Chalmer, that this is absolutely central. It is not a peripheral issue. Um, the prospect of people generally having to pay higher taxes to bail out the, uh, to repay the bank bailouts while it is business as usual for the people in the city and on Wall Street, I think is sickening and I'm astonished that the worst damage so far is a stone through Fred Goodwin's window. Uh, and I think that uh, I would very much like to hear what the panel thinks about this problem and what they would propose to do about it, because I think it's absolutely central, this point about fairness. And I think that we risk very serious social dislocation if we cannot do something about this grotesque inequality. Charlie, do you want to have a go at bonuses and then yeah. we can... Um, I mean, first of all, I, 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 like you, share the horror at some of the excessive remuneration that goes to individuals on the back of what, what is very clearly um, uh, uh, activity that's not value-creating, and it's on the back... And now, particularly, it's perhaps on the back of very large amounts of public money going into these businesses. Um, my point, though, is that, that I think that you can focus too much on that and not enough on actually resolving this properly. And, and I think the, re the, the resolution needs to lie politically, in real political resolve, to drive through some more significant changes, particularly to the, to the shape of the economy. We clearly can't rely as much on financial services. There needs to be a proper strategy for economic renewal. I also think regulation will play a part. But I also think there's something about meritocracy, and there is something about, uh, about uh, looking at the, the, uh, the nature of the human condition and the human mind and needing to create something which, is, uh, which allows people to succeed and, indeed, in some cases, to fail, to pick up uh, Alan's uh, points. 
um, but to do so within a context which is generally fairer. And, and, I, and I, what I would defend is, is there are some good bonuses. You know, and in our business, we, we have bonuses. Actually, it's one of the main ways in which we uh, reward uh, our partners uh, for their membership of the partnership. There is a key difference, though, which is those bonuses are paid on the basis of a proportion of last year's profit, so it's an actual profit figure, and they're also distributed uh, on a, a very different basis to the one that's applied elsewhere. It's basically a flat percentage of salary which is applied to everybody, from myself to the person who's most recently joined Waitrose. Now, obviously, that results in a different absolute amount, but it creates a link between all those people. And, I, and I'm not necessarily saying that that is a, uh, uh, the way every business should reward its people. Um, but I do think there are fairer ways to run businesses, and I think that you know, adopting and embracing that as a real opportunity uh, could play a significant part in actually finding a way out of this, which, is, which addresses some of the fundamental issues that have got us into it in the first place. Noreena, you didn't say anything about bonuses. Um, well, I'm very happy to. Um, and just to clarify, Simon, I was very clear to exclude the... Um, stuck in the 90s, golden gecko worshipping bankers from my generalization about business. Um, bonuses. Um, well, I mean, I think like most people in the room, it feels almost shocking that we have witnessed over the last few weeks images of bankers um, receiving kind of $10, $20 million bonuses um, at the same time that we know that this is only because the taxpayer um, bailed them out with hundreds of billions of dollars. And um, a Goldman Sachs executive actually yesterday was quoted by saying, we have to tolerate the inequality as a way to achieve greater prosperity and opportunity for all. This was um, Goldman Sachs chief advisor, um, Brian Griffiths. Um, which, of course, is completely ridiculous because um, we, there is no correlation between huge inequality and massive growth um, at the um, end of, well, after the Second World War, the United States economy um, soared despite there being, you know, relatively small kind of income gap. And, in fact, we see lots of very prosperous um, economies where inequality is is small and in fact the more we learn about inequality we more the more we learn that inequality itself is a problem not only in terms of um, kind of matters of justice but it affects the health of a society it affects um, kind of gender opportunities it affects a whole host of things one wouldn't necessarily um, think about so you know these bankers you know I don't understand why and how the bankers are still getting their bonuses. This is a big mystery to me. Um, I don't understand why there hasn't been stronger action around this. And I don't understand how these people um, can shamelessly be celebrating at a time when, as you said, Simon, the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street is just so profound. Just actually, Stefan, you want to have a go at answering that question? Why is it so difficult to deal with the bonuses and regulate them? Well, I think the, you know, the smartest guys in the room are called that for a reason. And I think the problem for regulators is it's very, very hard to keep up with very, very clever people who move fast 
and will find ways around even the most brilliantly designed regulator. That's not an excuse, that's not a reason for not trying to regulate, but it is very difficult. And um, let me quote another FT contributor and columnist, John Kay, who I think makes a very important point about regulation when he says, in the end, it's going to work better if you can regulate with values and not with rules. But wait a minute, Stefan, every single member of the, of the senior leadership in the Conservative Party and Labour government has criticised bonuses. So there's a clear, you'd think, at least a rhetorical majority in the House of Commons mm. for doing something. Why hasn't that happened? Well, I think, there's been, I think there has been a failure of nerve in some places. I think you saw the reaction to Adair Turner's comments, mm -hmm. where he was actually, if you go back to the transcript of the Prospect Roundtable, he was referring quite specifically to the uh, CDO squared. Uh, those, were the finance, those were the socially useless bits of innovation. He was not talking about investment banking per se, right. but the, 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 the howls of discomfort when he used the phrase socially useless showed you what a powerful lobby that is. Okay, quickly, Simon, why, why is this not happening? Well, one of, the, one of the explanations, which is just adorably comic, is that regulation in respect of remuneration will actually result in the flight of talent. Is there no talent? All of us in this room would want to see fly than the crack team that brought us last autumn. I would, you know, go and run investment bands in Tonga, please. Um, regulation is very important. In, and again, in the United States, the issue is to respond a little bit to Stefan's point, um, is a competition of regulators. And you're absolutely right. Smart people in a room will gravitate to the most banking, investment bank, most risk, risky business friendly regulator. So the argument going on very intelligently, actually, I think, both in Congress and the administration, is actually how much concentration of regulation should there be? Should it be, a, should it be left of the Federal Reserve, or should it be a new independent sort of financial okay. protection agency of the kind set up in the New Deal. Um, and as long as there is a sort of politics of regulation, politics of regulatory institutions, of course the sharks will feed and fatten and go steadily moving forth and ours will be the blood in the water. God, I sound like a politician. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> right, next, next question. Yes, uh, the lady next door and then we'll come to the front. Hi, um, my name is Viv Grosskop. I'm a writer with the Evening Standard and the Guardian. And anyone else who will have me, we are in a recession. Um, I just, <laughs> I was very interested by the point you made that now it's businesses who are taking over the role of government because I agreed that, um, especially in this country, people feel very cynical about politics, about politicians, and about government. But it worries me that we might ask businesses to take over social initiatives. I'm quite happy for businesses to donate whatever money they want to charity. Yeah. Great to have money from anywhere. But let's not forget what politics is there for, what government is there for, and what democracy is there for. And I didn't feel that you were putting a judgment on what you said. Right. You appeared okay. to be optimistic. Got, got the point. Let, Noreen, do you want to quickly deal with that? Then I'm going to go over to Charlie and Nana. Sure. Um, no, like you, I share, I, would, I, I don't want to hand over um, society and all societal institutions to business. The calculus that they're making is a different one to that of the ideal democratic government, which would be looking at the interests of minorities that would be um, not thinking only about, um, you know, 
the potential consumption value of what they were doing. So, no, I, I, don't, I don't feel that. But, but what I do think is clear is that, um, is that, you know, we can deploy businesses, and businesses can be deployed in ways more than just um, giving a charitable donation. I mean, when I look at an example like TNT and what they've done with the World Food Program, where they've actually used their brain power and gone into that organization and worked out with it how it can reach um, conflict zones in a much faster way and used all their expertise from their logistics. Um, that's the sort of knowledge transfer that really makes sense. And again, when you think about the green economy and you think about the innovations that are going to be needed, um, we're going to be needing business to be doing it. But God forbid that we left everything to business. There's a clear role for government. Okay. A clear role. Charlie? Um, I, I, would just, I, I actually felt when Narina said that, that, that it, there's, a, there's a key question. Is this a business opportunity or is it actually a political failure? And, and I have to say that I, I believe very strongly in businesses being very responsible, uh, in playing a very active part in the societies in which they trade. Um, but I don't think that businesses can or can be governments. And actually, I think one of the big issues we've seen, really the failure, I suppose, is that politicians have sort of bought the idea that the market was always right. And, and look what, what happened. I mean, they sort of abdicated, I think, their responsibility for showing real leadership on key social issues. Uh, and, and it would be a great mistake, I think, for, for, for us to sort of assume that businesses can solve those social issues. They can play a part within a clear political framework and against uh, some clear and determined political leadership. You wouldn't be thinking of that famous quote, um, all we care about is that people can get filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. <laughs> No, I think um, I, there, there may be an element of that. And then on the basis of the taxes, you can go and spend lots of money on public services and think you've done the job. But actually, long term, uh, yeah, we, need a, we need a better, stronger society, and we need political leadership to give us that. Anna? Um, I think we're failing to realize that politics has not been in the business of spurring on virtue for about 300 years, um, certainly in England. Um, we, we live in a liberal society, a society of negative liberalism, which suggests that essentially the state should leave you alone. Uh, it should permit free market enterprise to go on without too much harm. But other than that, it's not in the business of telling us how to live. And in many areas, we believe that. And we think that's jolly good. And we feel very upset whenever the government becomes what um, the newspapers call a nanny state. So we're not into a nanny state. Um, the people who used to do the nanny bit used to be the church. Um, and, uh, and then for a while, people thought that there might be artists who would do the sort of nannying thing and be the cultural uh, leaders. We haven't known how to fill that space. So the nanny role, should it be businesses that are doing a bit of nannying? Uh, should it be um, some sort of revived secular sort of church or something that used to occupy that space? Or should politicians, um, again, try and create a kind of moral authority, just like ancient Athens was, was a kind of moral authority? But we're heavily confused about this. Um, I'm, I'm, like, like most people, I'm actually a strong believer in having a nanny. We all need a nanny um, because, you know, things get out of control without nanny. It's always presented as a bad thing, but, we, you know, bring on the nanny. The thing is, we just don't know who that nanny should be uh, and with what authority we're vesting her or him. Um, but I think that's what we're talking about, um, how to uh, distribute uh, kind of notions of virtue in a, in a, uh, in a commercial society. Mm. I thought most of the nannies in the last 10 years have come from Central and Eastern Europe. <laughs> and that is reflected in the financial sector. It's a problem of productivity, profitability and innovation. And if you look at the real economy, in fact, it's become more financialized 
partly reflecting this, and uh, GE Capital is as guilty as any other financial sector. Intel, which invests its profits in venture capital rather than its own business, is as guilty of this. Companies that use 0% finance to sell products is as guilty of this. IBM, which sells patents rather than investing in businesses around them, is as guilty. The real economy is the problem. We need to think about how we're going to fix that. And there's a debate at the weekend between Martin Wolf, Stefan uh, and Lionel's colleague, and Phil Mullen, which was very much about Martin's angle that we should get back to the status quo ante, and Phil Mullen, who argued we need a wartime style, if not in effect, transformation of the economy, as perhaps we had during the Cold War, uh, which led to the creation of the Internet. Maybe we need more fundamental transformation on, on that, of that scale. Is that possible? Is it doable? Is it desirable? Is the real economy the problem and not the financial sector? Thanks. Um, just to put it on the record, the, the Financial Times position is we are not against bonuses. We, we definitely support bonuses when tied to proven performance uh, extending beyond a single year. And on a personal note, I would say that the, the part of the problem, Charlie alluded to it earlier, is that the alignment of incentives. If people on the board and the chief executive were to be held responsible for large losses in a year, clearly directly responsible, they wouldn't be taking the kind of risks that were, were going on, particularly at the height of the credit boom, 2005, 6, 7. Anyway, um, Simon, do you want to address the, uh, the gentleman's point? Well, in my amateurish, non-economic expert way, I, 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 flounderingly, I, I would. It, it, would you not agree that actually, I, I agree with you about the real economy. If you again look at the kind of catastrophe that is Detroit in terms of automobile industry, you, you couldn't be more right about innovation, productivity, technology, doing the things you need to do to compete with those who produce cars like, you know, the South Koreans and and the Japanese and so on. We all know that story. However, the story nonetheless, would you not agree, was that an extraordinary amount of capital through the derivative market and in sort of obscurely traded derivatives was disproportionately invested. And I'm not saying there's a kind of inelastic view of, you know, only a fixed amount of capital which could either have gone to help Joe Blow develop his fabulous widget machine, whatever it's going to be, out there in Duluth. But a huge amount of capital, this is the way it's seen in small town America, was spent on the kind of incestuously self-generating nature of the world of derivatives and credit default swaps, all run by fancy equations from MIT and so on. Um, and somehow not getting through to struggling at the margin, relatively lowly, you know, meagerly capitalized innovative companies out there in the heartland. I don't think that's true, true of Gateshead or Scunthorpe. And as I say, I know it's not a kind of inelastic view of only so much beans to go around. But now we're in a state of industrial prostration in much of the United States. And we can either say, tough, that's, you know, that's Charles Darwin. Um, that, that's the way it is. But there are huge social and political costs to be right. paid if that's our... And I would just say one more thing, uh, Lionel, about the nanny state. Is it's, it's, it, Alan might be right, but it's not historically the case that governments have always felt it's absolutely not their job to legislate virtue. Let's take civil rights legislation, for example, of the 1960s and Lyndon Johnson's part in it, without which we wouldn't have, for better or worse, the president we have now. Let's take the issue of kind of the, the 
the impossibility of enforcing fundamental decencies about who can carry weapons in the United States. And right. so why not actually be less embarrassed about what nannyism might do in respect to the subjects we're talking about tonight? Okay. Um, I'm under a little bit of time pressure here, so I'm going to take three questions. I did say I'd take at the front. One, two, and then one other. Um, gentleman nearest the front with glasses, yeah. So would you like to start? Um, sorry, would you like to start? And then you, sir. Thank you. Um, Colin Melvin. I'm Chief Executive of Hermes Equity Ownership Services. I'd like to find a, a thread running through Charlie's comments to Narina and to Simon, um, which is ownership, I think, and, and uh, the importance of ownership. I would observe that we all here own companies through pension plans and insurance products and so on. Um, yet that ownership seems not to have been used to call companies to account on our behalf. Um, I work on behalf of pension funds. They are becoming more interested in this area and are starting to put pressure on companies to, to take a better line uh, in social, environmental and ethical responsibilities. And, and could there, and this is the question, could there be then a, a route back to getting to connecting the owners of capital, us, with the users of capital, companies, cutting out the short-term noise of the city, the, the avarice and the greed that, that's enraged Simon so much. Uh, is there a way in which we can, we can democratize the ownership of companies properly, uh, collectivize it, and call companies to account on our behalf to create a, a, a longer-term uh, mm. perspective in, in the mm. generation of wealth? Thank you. It's a benign rage, by the way. Yes. Peter York, I collect kitsch. The kitschest thing I collect is old business books. The last 25 years of business books, their vocabulary, their rhetoric, their taking Tiger Mountain by strategy, their winning by intimidation, all that vocabulary makes me ask the question, to what extent are media to blame? When I look at the recent, what I'd call diversionary, attacks on the public sector, I think they are very much diversionary, of the, uh, hoping to divert the anger, not just aimed at the banking sector, but um, at global business of a certain kind, about the, uh, the rewards given by Remco's, and those sorts of things. If you'd been in Birmingham in 1920 at the Chamber of Commerce, you might not have liked the language, but you'd have known where you were. And currently, the culture of business and the language of business is a hideous, semi-illiterate mishmash of applied CSR, mm. um, along with the you know snakes in suit stuff, the psychopath stuff that Stefan was talking about. Because if you go back. I've got very bad news for you, by the yeah. way. You're not only just out of time, but you're going to have to put up with Martin Luke's returning to the Financial Times tomorrow. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> tomorrow morning. <laughs> Martin Luke's is it. Yeah. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? Yes. Uh, next question. Yeah. Actually, why don't, we, why don't we be generous and take two? And the, but it, make it brief. Um, Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review. I'm a 100% business owner. When it goes wrong, uh, I have to dig into my own pockets. There's a bit in me that really dislikes uh, some of the people who are running some of the large companies in Britain 
describing themselves as business people because to me they look like agents that are out of control. I think I, the, the Hermes point at the front, where are the owners? Um, and these are characters with um, contracts that always get them an upside but no downside, always get them an escape. Even the point you made, Lionel, about you, know, you want to make sure that bonuses are at least paid on last year's profits. I mean, even that in the cycle of things is extremely short term. Um, and really, you know, this short-termism where you've got executives that are hardly there for three or four years, they're basically picking up some of the work that other people have done, they're riding the waves, they're taking their chances. It seems to me it's get the agents under control, get the checks and balances, and how we can go through all of this without saying where were the bloody accountants, you know, in the conspiracy of silence, the other set of agents. And there really needs to be something done about this. But I dislike intensely mm. the sense that I'm categorized mm. with some of the people who are managers just reaping commission and turnover okay. and nothing that uh, approximates to what I think is real business. Thank, where you thank only you very collect much. it when you've really um, made thank it. You, thank you. Is there an accountant in the house? No. <laughs> uh, can we go to the back and then that's it? Thanks very much. Uh, Tony Halmos, City of London Corporation. Can I ask the panel to comment on whether they think in the British political scene, the, um, where they think in the British political scene the two main parties are on this issue? And in particular, do they think that after 12 years of a very pro-business new Labour government, actually in a perverse way we're going to get the reverse and the Conservatives are reverting to a more traditional uh, position on... Uh, these issues, uh, and in particular, okay, um, that their, that their, their approach to economic policy. And yeah. on a lighter point to conclude, I wonder if, with Cameron being an old Etonian, whether it's the return of the nanny. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no comment. Um, Charlie, do you want to take the questions about agents and ownership? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy with what you say. I mean, I, you know, it, the, the way our business is constructed is, uh, you know, the management are employed by the owners of the business, and the owners of the business are the people who work in it. And actually, it, it comes back to this issue, something we haven't talked about quite as much, about accountability. I mean, you talk about the word accountants. Um, and, and, I, and I think there has been a failure of, of owners to hold management to account. Um, as, uh, uh, I also think it's difficult, though, when the owners uh, are seduced by the possibility of earning stellar returns, not on the basis of what the company has actually done or actually the wealth that they've actually generated, but more on the trades that have been possible and the, and the sort of the, the sentiment that surrounds them at any particular moment in time. Um, but I, but I, have, I do have some sympathy, and I think actually one of the, the, the contagion, if you like, that has, has spread from what's been going on in the financial markets has spread into corporate life as well, uh, both in terms of the levels of remuneration uh, and indeed the incentives and what people focus on. You know, the fact is a lot of, a lot of senior people in, in, in publicly quoted companies, if they've got a remuneration package which rests on the share price, they'll focus on what's going to drive the share price. Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Noreen, very quickly on this question of agents and ownership. Yeah, which is also, of and course... Whether Ham, the Hamis approach should and can spread, could spread and should spread. Um, well, it's a question about governance, um, really, isn't it, as well. Um, and in, in the world in which we now live, owning one share in a company really doesn't mean anything, which means, um, because you can't really hold a company to account, so all this money is vested in pension funds 
and funds who clearly were sleeping um, as Rome burned and didn't, and didn't go in and ask lots of questions about what are these products and you know, what would happen if a baker in Alabama defaulted at the same time as a hairdresser in um, Hatfield. I mean, they didn't ask those sorts of questions. Um, the other failure of governance you know, is perhaps that companies tend to be governed by a particular group, um, the old boy network. I mean, the percentage of women on boards remains minuscule both here and in the United States. And, um, you know, the point of that is that if you don't have diversity on boards, if you don't have people who are outside of the main group and are willing to challenge the norms, well, you probably won't get the challenging questions you need. And Norway and Spain have um, instituted legislation whereby women will have to make up 40% of corporate boards. So more diversity, more governance, and also but rethinking ownership as well. The seventh most um, successful region in Europe is the cooperative region in Italy. So, you know, different ownership structures, as Charlie said, can okay. also make a difference. Thank you very much. Um, Stefan, does the media bear any responsibility for this? And answer carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, not, not responsibility, in the, I think, in the, in, in, the, in the real sense of the word, but we are participants as well as observers at times, and, and our, our judgments that we make and the pieces we choose to write and publish, that adds to the background music and the running commentary, and so if we get things wrong, and sometimes, well, personally, I'm sure I do, then we're part of the story, and just in the spirit of Martin Luke's, I want to say that Peter, I'm 275% with you on, <laughs> on, the, on the business books, uh, and we must stamp them out. <laughs> yeah. Alain, do you want, would you like to talk, take up any of those um, questions, uh, particularly agents and owners? Well, I think uh, at one level it's a problem of scale. Um, human beings uh, are, are all flawed, and um, if you put a large amount of power in anyone's hands, you're likely to get, when there is a mistake, and there inevitably will be a mistake, that the disasters are likely to be larger. And I think what we're seeing now, all these attempts to break up big institutions, etc., it's really a recognition that every human being is going to make a mistake. So if you simply limit the scope of, every, of any one organization so to make uh, uh, mistakes, um, you're going to be um, limiting the, the, the downside. So I think that's a very nice sort of humbling idea that um, with scale come, come dangers because of inherent human stupidity. Simon. <clears throat> I just absolutely couldn't agree more with, with Anna, actually. And um, both Mervyn Kinn and Paul Volcker have tried to say, um, it's an extraordinary paradox that after the disasters we went through a year ago, um, you know, those who were left in the field, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, are bigger than ever. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I guess my concern inevitably, it won't surprise you to hear, is that this is a moment of reckoning, not in any apocalyptic sense. When Arena works in the Netherlands, the word, when you ask for your bill at a cafe in Holland, you ask to afrekener, which means you get a bill and you think about value, the value, you know, did I actually pay the right kind of money for, how, how good a time did I have, you know, with my lunch? This needs to be a moment when we start unembarrassedly to talk about the nature of value in capitalist societies. And, or else, it's not just capitalism that will be in trouble, but democracy as well. Thank you, Simon. Um, it's been a great discussion, wonderful debate. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, we'll look forward to the next um, snow-clad Davos in London. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.